welcome to another episode of Conversation with a Chef. I'm Joe Ritty and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the lands and airwaves where this conversation takes place. Land which was never ceded. Land where communities came together to eat seasonally, locally and without exhausting resources. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and rising. Today I'm talking to Anthony Femia. Anthony is a cheesemonger. Not just any cheesemonger, but an internationally recognised cheesemonger who regularly sets off on wandering cheesemonger trips around the world and in 2018 was the first Australian cheesemonger to be invited to the carve of Marcel Petit in the Jura Mountains in France to select, select his very own flavour profile of Conti. Luckily for us, Anthony calls Melbourne home, and in 2015 he opened Maker and Munger in the Paran Market. So you can get along there and sample the glorious Conti for yourselves. But that's not all. There is all kinds of cheesy goodness going on down there, and Anthony very much sees the cheesemonger role as one of educator as much as seller of cheese. He loves it. Having spent over a decade refining his own knowledge here and overseas through reading, research, tasting, and of course by spending time with master cheesemongers and top cheesemakers, he very happily imparts his fromage largesse. I felt honoured to sit down with Anthony and get a glimpse of that knowledge, and we honestly could have talked for hours about seasonality, affinage and what makes good blue cheese. To celebrate eight years of the Chapel of Cheese, as Anthony likes to refer to the permanent stand in the Paran Market, he's been running a Friends of Fromage series over August, and this will continue into September with every weekend featuring toasties made by iconic Melbourne chefs. So far, taste buds have been treated by friends of the podcast Dave Verhurl, Shannon Martinez and Tom Serafian. So I'd be blocking out the next few weekends if I were you and heading down to the Paran Market. Joe, nice to meet you. How are you? Good. Sorry, I think I've just done the circuit of the market. How's your day been? Yeah, it's been pretty cruisy actually. Yeah. Uh, Wednesdays we get all our prep done for the week and um, just get a bit of a deep clean and just get some accounting done. Yeah. So, um, Amazing. So yeah. I've got lots of questions. All right, <laughs> because, um, and then I had to write them down just so I'd remember them all. So I normally talk to chefs, but then I yes. think it's really great to talk to supply, oh, suppliers and yes. Um, as well, so um, I'm happy to talk to you today. Um, so to start off with, yes. let's. What is a cheesemonger? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a cheesemonger, yes, it's it's an all-encompassing position when it comes to dairy, right through to cooked uh, cheese products. So we're out here to educate people not only on products that they should be eating in season but also how to cook with those products the understanding of the proteins the milk more importantly as well what the, the animals are grazing on whether it's grass or silage and how that can affect our health um, and just being there to advocate the I guess the raw milk fight as well and uh, the artisan and farmhouse cheesemakers as well to celebrate them whether they're making incredible products in Myrtleford or down the coast um, in Mornington, 
It's about letting customers know that there's more to life than just triple cream brie and cheddar. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And do you? How do you become a cheesemonger? Do you have to study? You can. Um, we're not fortunate in this country to have those courses, but in in the UK, there's the um, the artisan cheese school uh, where you learn how to become a cheesemonger, which has been pretty good. Yeah. Uh, in America. Uh, they teach you and they also host annual cheesemonger competitions called the Cheesemonger Invitational. Uh, that's a great friend of mine named Adam Moskovitz. He set that up with the guys behind Mills Yard Dairy in London and a few other um, incredible supplies of cheese from Europe to educate and create a, a remarkable cheese scene in America. Like the cheesemonger world over there is phenomenal. It's I guess where we are with baristas in the coffee industry at the moment, where they're seen as someone prominent in their community, um, and you can make a real career out of it. Um, and then in France, of course, you've got an actual university uh, where you go to study, become a fromager and an affineur, um, and it's like a four-year course uh, that you, you do straight out of school, and you have access to the, the Medal of France winners, uh, so the MOFs, um, and you can do a stage with them, or you could start your own cheese shop. So it's. Uh, and what did you do? What was your pathway? Yeah, I um, worked for some pretty interesting um, characters in Sydney, um, in a couple of delis up there, and and a lot of it was self tuition, um, reading dairy science books uh, that I could get my hands on, um, working with mum in a food store and watching the way she interacted with customers, and then taking myself on annual trips to Europe to work with cheesemakers or spend time with cheese mongers and I, um, I was lucky enough to be a part of the World Cheesemonger Competition in 2013 and I came fourth uh, and back wow. then it was like the best of the best cheesemongers. Now it's kind of turned into a competition where anyone can kind of nominate themselves and enter ah. um, but back then it was an incredibly fierce competition and I was winning most of the day and then uh, stuffed up on the um, the cutting of the cheese because you had to cut 250 gram portions of products and in Australia we don't really sell that large amount we do more 150 200 so I got nowhere near 250 um, and dropped out of the um, the rankings but what were some of the other categories you know like is it yeah. smelling and yeah tasting? so blind tasting um, also there was 50 multiple choice questions on dairy science and I got 50 out of 50 which wow. is great um, and those questions also included photos of animals where you had to identify the type of cow, the type of goat. Uh, you had to conduct the perfect cheese platter. So you had this access to this two metre by one and a half metre table of all these remarkable raw milk cheeses from France. And you had to conduct and build. You had to do a perfect pairing as well. They gave you a cheese a day beforehand that you had to then go to a local market and pick the uh, goods up to create that dish. Uh, it was a cold dish. There was a, a hot dish. Um, and then you had to do a cheese scenery uh, to encourage kids under under eight years old to um, uh, eat cheese. So I um, created like a little train um, track and um, little cupcakes and, and these incredible sort of stones where you'd eat the cheese off it and then you'd be able to draw on the stone. Um, wow. So it was just being creative. And then you had to sculpt cheese and that was something that I had never done before. So I practiced with soap. Uh, for about a month before the competition because soap bars have texture like cheese so instead of wasting 
cheese. I just went to a chemist and bought, <laughs> bought a lot of soap and they looked at me quite weirdly. And um, What kind of cheese are you sculpting? Uh, so mimolette, which is this really hard, round, orange ball of a cheese from wow. the north of um, France, so up in the Nord. Uh, so you can do beautiful flowers on that. They gave us a wedge of Comte to sculpt and then this little semi-hard Tom cheese that I just did little florets with. So, um, And then from there I... Um, thought you know I really want to make a go of this and and um, applied for a Churchill fellowship which I I won in um, that same year and went away in 2015 to the centre of France to a guy named uh, Ivan Lacher who's now here at, in Castlemaine Victoria at Long Paddock wow um, but he's known around the world as like the figurehead when it comes to the science behind cheese making like a lot of the new world cheeses whether it's Jasper Hill in Vermont in America Nils Yardary in London who had him help them resuscitate old recipes that a lot of the territorial cheesemakers are now using France as well a lot of cheesemakers there um, they utilise his skill set so I spent a few weeks with him went to Nils Yard in London spent a month and a half there working in the caves and going to different cheesemakers around England and then um, spent six weeks with Jasper Hill in, in Vermont there in America and and some time with the University of Vermont and Harvard, learning about microbiology and cheese rinds, and that was fascinating. Uh, there's a professor there, or she's now in San Diego, uh, her name's Rachel Dutton. She worked with David Chang on a lot of his ferments, um, and they had a documentary about her, and, and she had just discovered this unique, um, I guess, connection between bacteria on the rinds of wash rind cheeses and barnacles in deep sea and they couldn't find out how they were linked like the DNA matched and it was Gosh. quite interesting because it's you'd think you'd automatically assume it's the water that we're using to wash the cheeses yeah. but it wasn't it's just the DNA That's Wow. That for her is, is quite interesting and, and for us cheesemongers who like to delve in science that, that's pretty phenomenal. That so I feel like you packed in like a whole degree. Just in, so how long were you? That was a, uh, it was about 12 to 14 weeks from memory, yeah, about three and a half months. That's intense. How yeah. amazing. And I came wow. back and opened Maker and Munger. That yeah. was three weeks later. So um, Amazing. Yeah, I had to sort of digest the knowledge and then get into entrepreneur mode. So I read that Maker and Munger, though, the idea was born at Builder's Arms. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And that then was... did you go and do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So I left that job, um, Spring Street Grocer. I, I'd been working there from the very beginning of design phase. Um, so back then that was just an empty office space and the owner of the European didn't want a 7-Eleven to go into that space and yeah. sort of tarnish the look of that beautiful Paris end of Spring oh, Street. And so he... Uh, I went one, that was actually a funny night, I went one night to the European, it was my farewell, uh, I was moving to Brooklyn to go work in cheese over there um, in America and uh, I went with a great knowledgeable man, Richard Thomas, who a lot of the cheesemakers were taught by, he developed quite a lot of cheeses here in our country and, and, and helped train a lot of chefs to make cheese in their kitchens and, and we brought our own cheese and um, the manager at the European was quite shocked that someone would bring their own food to a restaurant and went to kick us out and um, Con Christopoulos, who's the owner of that group, uh, heard who it was out there and came and said hello to Richard and then 
he sat with us with a bottle of um, burgundy and an actual cheese plate to put our cheeses on and um, <laughs> proceeded to tell us about this project he had next door and he didn't know what he wanted to do, whether it was a gelato bar, grocer, and he had this underground thing. I um, met with him uh, the next day, cancelled my flights, and then the rest is history. I helped design and, and cool. build and, and run uh, that, that pretty cool underground it's so cheese cool shop, so, you go down uh, the spiral staircase and it's just like because yeah. i know this is people say this is the cheese chapel or the chapel of cheese yes yeah which do you prefer uh the chapel of cheese chapel of yeah. cheese right uh that was like the what was that that was like a it was like a saint james subway yeah <laughs> like <laughs> so back in cool. time i know 1950s just real cool art deco plus yeah sort of just the bricks that we had sourced for that walls were amazing and, I know. and the architect Kristen Green she was phenomenal with her her creativity um, unfortunately it's now more of an event space and they sell cheese yeah. upstairs but back then it was it was a great time to be in Melbourne in food because a lot of great chefs were coming downstairs to discover things and I could then wholesale to them and yeah. um, in particular the guys at Cumulus and Cutler and co and, and, and their knowledge their weekly staff training gave me the confidence to say okay there are people out there who want to learn more it's not just Daffemoir or whatever Saint Agur or that yeah. kind of thing it's like okay people want to know seasonality and flavour so. yeah and so are you did I read that you're also on the Guild and yeah Guild of Fromage yeah. yeah so I'm still the youngest ever to be inducted um, so that's was, really going back to the Masons' days, isn't yeah. it? Guilds and things. That's yeah, cool. it's a it's a funny guild. Um, we're not sure exactly what it is. Um, How many people are in it? Oh, I couldn't tell you, but they're they're getting more and more popular in America. Um, but over here, it's kind of a political thing now. Um, oh. Now it's uh, who's friends with a I guess a certain person who has the permission to induct people. So there's some great people oh. who haven't been inducted have you got a secret handshake or is it just like a, <laughs> just a cheese thing? there's cool robes um the one <laughs> I, yeah the one i want to be inducted in and i never will it's the the breeder mo where you actually wear the same size as the breeder mo on your head so it's this oh, like 60 centimeter brie hat yeah. and you wear the red cloak and and you become the protector of um brie but but are you the Garde yeah, so just the, what does that mean? That's kind of like the guard and jury of uh, cheese quality. So there's oh, certain levels. So there's the Matra Fromager, which is the number one, but that's more of a boys' club, um, and, and that will never happen. Um, so it's, yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a really cool thing. Like, for me, it was more access to studies that you could get your hands on and read and also the community. Um, yeah. So... For me, the, the better community is the, the Slow Food Cheese Festival, the one that's held every two years in, in Piemonte in Italy. That oh. they're, they're the advocates for raw milk and farmhouse mm. products. And that's when everybody from around the world who are passionate about protecting indigenous products, they get together. And that those dinners are remarkable, just listening yeah. to people talk about different ways of pasture grazing, uh, different animals, um, uh, cultures that they use in their milk, uh, maturation methods for certain cheeses. You you really walk away very motivated to then come home and talk to your local cheesemakers and go, hey, this is what I'm seeing overseas. Mm. 
how about you try experimenting and mm. it's all about keeping journals as a cheese maker like there's no written formula every day it, it changes there's so many variables like the sunshine rain mm. how tall the grass is like if it's too tall there's no nutrients left are the cows eating close to their uh, patties like if is the um the dairy clean because if the dairy's got you know cow crap in there the half hour of between milking and waiting that half an hour beforehand whatever the cow's breathing or eating that comes through in the milk mm. so if you've got a dirty parlor and your cows are walking around in cow patties chances are 99 percent of the time that flavor will tarnish your your milk so it's little things like that that you pick up at these great conversations with these people that you bring yeah, wow. back here and, and they don't teach that at, at, at TAFE or, no. or, um, or um, yeah, farming colleges. So This is a controversial yeah. question. It yeah. just came to me. Yeah. Where do you stand on the whole Parmesan? The protection of protection, the name? Protection, yeah. I see the pros and cons. Like, yeah. Because I'm a, an artisan and farmhouse advocate, I like it because it forces our cheesemakers to come up with something that's unique to them and their terroir and we have a few cheesemakers who have done that and the restaurants support them but they don't have access to supermarkets so then on the other hand you've got the big industrial players the big co-ops like dairy farmers um, and parmalat etc who who make that malel parmesan and pecorino and they stock you know that's we're talking millions of dollars there that they export to either Asia, uh, Abu Dhabi or, or across Australia and to all the supermarkets and make a consistent product. And how do you tell someone that could be a fifth or sixth generation farmer who's supplying milk at a great price to those cheesemakers, hey, sorry, they're not going to make Parmesan anymore. It's who do you play devil's advocate to do you play it to the farmers who are trying to make a go and make something interesting or the ones who don't want to supply milk to less than a dollar a litre mm. products and want to make a, a commodity product because in every industry you have commodity dealers and you also have artisans and the commodity ones are usually the ones who invest in research and development so you want to encourage them to survive but yeah. I still think they should change names. Like the one that they should definitely change is Pecorino. Pecorino is sheep, and over here we make cow's milk Pecorino, and it's very misleading. And, yeah. and if you've got a cow's milk allergy, which a lot of people do, they think it's lactose, but it's actually a, a cow's milk protein, and they're eating local-made Pecorino. It's it's a very frustrating and dangerous dice that they roll. Uh, yeah, right. There. So I guess getting off the soapbox, that's the only one I would change. It, the word Parmesan... That's American name. We'd never be able to copy that. As long as we don't call it Parmigiano Reggiano, which is protected, um, then, yeah. And I saw that um, a local cheesemaker has just won um, the Artisan Prize for his blue cheeses at Berries Creek. Yeah, Berries Creek. He won Best Cheesemaker at the World International Awards and first time I think in 140 years that someone outside of Europe has won that and and hats off to them like it is he especially his riverine blue the buffalo yeah which he draws the milk from his neighbor um and and buffalo milk is the hardest milk to use to make blue cheese because the fat globules are quite large it's more susceptible to rancid notes like it's so easy to spoil buffalo milk when adding blue cultures and then oxidizing the cheese on the inside to develop a blue mold and and he just did it by chance because uh, he makes 
incredible cow's milk blues, but he wanted to trial this because his neighbour had excess milk and, and he hit a home run. And for us at Maker Munger, we're super proud of that because for eight years now, that's been that and Colson Bassett Stilton have never left our counter. For me, those are the two best blues in the world. You have your rock forts, you've got your Rogue River Special Reserve, but for me, Colston Bassett Stilton from Nottinghamshire in England and Riverine Blue from Barry um, are the two best blues available in Australia. And wow. we've been saying that for so long here. And it was a, a proud moment for us, the, ch- the cheesemongers working here, just how cool that was. And, and I saw the sales go up this weekend because a whole bunch of new people wanted to try blue cheese, which is great because. As kids, we've all had... Like, I grew up with Blue Costello and Tongue mm. sandwiches. That was my lunch. <laughs> and so you're either a Danish Blue fan where your mouth is just coated with absolute brutal salt and spice or yeah. you're a Costello fan where it's very creamy with a slight tang. Yeah. There was no in-between. And um, if you were a Danish Blue uh, kid, you never had Blue again because it was... a a very bad experience but if you're Costello you, you kind of wanted to experience different cheeses and <laughs> Riverine kind of sits in its own category because it's a natural rinder blue so the flavour of the milk grows as the cheese ages and then they spike it to develop the blue mould so Buffalo milk gives you this incredible raw almond like flavour so just that hint of nuts hint of sweetness and then you balance it with that syrupy blue flavour it's perfect Wow! and hats off to them they deserve deserve that and I know a lot of great cheesemakers that enter that competition um, from around Europe that deserve to win every year like the perfect Gruyere and Gruyere Alpage like they're phenomenal alpine cheeses but to see the Aussies do that it's That's great. fantastic and it should give other cheesemakers confidence to, to follow his mould like he just does blue cheeses and okay. in our country we have cheesemakers who try to be the farmer the animal husbandry, cheesemaker, cheese affineur, farm gate, farmer's market, and they think I need to make 10 or 12 different styles of cheeses because I need to do all that. Yeah. But Barry, it's just blue cheese, send it out to the distributors and watch it grow. Like we need to specialise in just one style and it's yeah. just give them the confidence to do that. So. It's so European, isn't it? I think that yeah. is, yeah. I, yeah. Was actually, I lived in France for a year and Fantastic. I had friends took me to... Um, the Roquefort Cave nice. um, and I just couldn't when I was first when I first tasted it it was just too much for me especially I mean you know well, Roquefort it's Brebis so ewe milk and yep. it's re- super salty and it's like it's pretty strong but yeah. now I think it's you know the queen of blue cheeses but I watched now I try this Riverine one yeah. but, um, and my friends my French friends were saying you can't consider yourself French because you know I wanted to become French and, unless you can eat Roquefort and they would mix it with butter yeah. and they'd do everything just yeah, to yeah, get yeah. me and I'm like surely yeah. it's not but then I was a total convert yes. and um yeah the LaRue's cookbook has a <laughs> famous recipe um, 50% Roquefort 50% butter mash that together if you're using 100 grams of each you then do 30 ml nip of cognac fold that through oh my God. and then um, spring onion or shallot uh, depending if you're in victoria or new south wales just the white parts of those long green oh. onions dice that up fold that through and that's how you have it and so we we sell that here we call it the Rockford dip and that's oh, yum. yeah it's been that larue's cookbook has been fa- fascinating to learn 
the basics of cheese in in recipes and 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 how to introduce people to to Roquefort because it is <laughs> it's it's a big slap in the face. I mean, uh, the texture yeah. is incredible. That's second to none. How it just melts on the tongue. You can't recreate that in with any other milk other than sheep's milk. Yeah, and especially that that Lucerne, um that sheep there of that region. It's it's a noble. Um, noble um, sheep of, the, of, of France and then you've got the Maniche sheep of the Basque which is up there as well with the black or red faces so yeah. um, their milk is highly prized. Have you, have you been to Roquefort? To the uh, not to that part yet. I, um, it, I was meant to but I had a, a nasty bout of um, uh, listeria. Oh no, uh, not from a cheese? Yeah, oh, no. yeah. Um, I went with Ivan one day to, to taste with these cheesemakers, their new creations. And there was one cheese there that he wanted me to do a sensory evaluation on. He didn't want to touch it. Oh. And I tasted it. And basically the body organs almost shut down and we had to drive. And because we, we were in regional Laverne, uh, there weren't any chemists. Um, and then we went to a supermarket to try and get lemonade to help encourage like, gas and then vomit. But the only lemonade they had in the supermarket was all... Um, loaded with alcohol as well like it was all mixed oh my god so French so we had to find <laughs> we raced back to the farm and got this it's like a um, a gel that becomes a clay in your stomach and so and it's in a little like a toothpaste tube so that's all I ate for three days was this gel to help solidify the stomach to stop the gases etc from going through the body and into the other organs so god almost, who would have thought cheese tasting would be fraught with peril yeah but that uh, like in very very regional parts of France where they still use uh, uh, like no temperature control it's under the house it's wooden I mean wood is safer than plastic but very old wooden utensils with no knowledge for health requirements there are certain things that will still scare you and, and harm you and God, okay. that one um, that was an interesting my, my wow. life almost ended before my career began, I guess. Yeah, it's alarming. <laughs> but you do a lot of uh, cheesemonger wanderings around yeah, the world. Yeah. So um, where are yeah. some places you've been? I mean, the most magical for me will always be Comte, so the Jura Mountains. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about So it. that for me is the most special cheese because that's the last of the AOC or protected cheeses in France that hasn't had any industrial influence. Um, like Rockfort, for example, is going through what Champagne went through, where they're trying to extend the parameters. Camembert as well. Um, they're now starting to tighten Camembert rules again because they loosened it and allowed other milk. It used to be 100% Normandy cow milk, and now it could use Frisian. It could also go from outside of Normandy to come in. So Camembert became the most popular yet most bastardized cheese in the world. Um, but Comte has stood the test of time and. And the day I went, it was it was snowing in in March, so it shouldn't have been snowing, and it was just beautiful going up that mountain, up to the Fort Saint Antoine of Marcel Petit. So it's this old war fort that was built during the Prussian Wars that Marcel Petit himself took over in 1950s and transferred transformed it into a cheese maturation facility. And that image of that cave is on every Will of Comte. And when I started in cheese in Sydney and had to sit in this bloody cold room that the owner of the business said was 10 degrees but when I I bought a hygrometer it was actually minus four and I used to have to stand in there and sell cheese to people that was my first proper cheese job 
And you stayed. And I stayed because I wanted to learn and, and, and grow in <laughs> cheese. And that was the only thing that got me through was when wedges of Comte would come in with that image of the fort on the Comte. And, and I said, one day, I'll one day go I'm, going, I'm yeah. going to go. And I, I won a scholarship. I got best cheesemonger in, in Sydney in, in 2007, I think it was. And that got me a two-week trip to Melbourne to Holy Goat. And I... Um, mm absolutely loved that and then moved to Melbourne and thought you know what I'm going to start traveling for cheese and went and got invited because you, you weren't allowed to just visit Marcel Petit back then and, wow. and built a relationship with them to the point where we we pick a reservation we're the only cheesemonger in in the country that has the opportunity to go to Marcel Petit every year and and pick a flavor profile so the the affineur or trieur um, Jose who's been there for 32 years there's him and Claude who are the master affineurs and then there's all these people training under them. And Jose's dad taught him. So it's a career spent in this fascinating cave. And I don't know and how they do it. what does do? So they, they learn the, first their tongue. So they learn the palate. And then they learn the hearing. So they get a little trier. So it's like a little hammer and taster. And they bang oh, yeah. on the comte to learn the acoustics of what a good comte sounds like and what a cracked comte sounds like. And then it's the tasting. It's, it's seeing where that is at its age, what the cows were grazing on. And so when I went there, I drew on a, a little um, a sensory tongue, parts of the tongue I wanted um, to hit, and then wrote French names for things like nuttiness, sweetness, honey. He just, it's, it's like the great halls of Lord of the Rings or the, the, the dwarfs. Like he just ran through these giant halls. There's like 200,000 wheels in there. And he starts picking batches of cheese that he knew would have that what? type of flavour. So it was incredible. And for me, I didn't know how he did it because that, like the signs of a, a, a healthy maturation room is ammonia, like very bad ammonia. So you see it on a video or you think, wow, that's romantic. But you go there and your eyes are stinging because healthy cheeses give off gas, carbon dioxide. So it becomes ammonia. So... I don't know how the hell he did it that he could taste things while still smelling. So obviously he's adjusted to it. Yeah, so it took me three days of going back to the cave to um, then appreciate what flavours he picks. So his role every month is to pick six wheels for us that will have that flavour, take the two months to travel on the ship to get to us and still have that flavour profile. So the age of the cheese becomes uh, inconsequential because we could sometimes get a, a 10 month old Comte, 18 month, 24 month. It's just yeah. going to always have that creamy texture and the flavour that I'm we want. I'm definitely so. coming back and trying some of that. I love yeah. Comte. Just when, I just love the butter. It's almost like shortbread. Some of those yeah. Comte you have where they're just so and kind of almost crumbly but yeah, yeah I love that. And then there's a myth of the old Comte. Like This is the Coca-Cola effect of, of things like people talk about three year old Comte but the eight affineurs over there in the Jura, no one's ripening their cheeses beyond, say, 24 months. If you get a three-year Comte, you're paying premium for something that's been rejected a long time ago and just sat in someone's cool room. Like, there's this huge wholesale facility there in, um, in Rungis in um, Paris. It's this remarkable wholesale shed where cheese as far as the eye can see like it's kilometers worth and there's a shed in there that has comte that they've taken from all the different affineurs that have been sitting there for up to three years and then they just it goes from like a five dollar a kilo cheese to two hundred dollars a kilo by the time it hits a deli counter in, in australia and you think i need to try that three-year-old like and you taste it and it's got 
it's changed completely. It's it's dense, it's caramelized, it's got the calcium crystal crunch. It's it's what a, a great gouda is. But then people think that's incredible. It's like truffle oil. Oh, I see, people I see. who have grown up on truffle oil and never experienced a fresh truffle, they think truffle oil is like yeah. a, a luxury product, but it's a, a chemical made in a lab with zero truffle in it. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Illusions shattered. Yes. Yeah. Now, just um, tell me, you've mentioned a few times about seasonality. Yes. Um, what, and I uh, naively <laughs> didn't really know about seasonal. Ch- so, it's, it's, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think about, like, in autumn, winter, you, you crave meatier products, you crave fulfilling food. So, you know, autumn is always dark or game. Winter, we go for slow roasts like lamb, pork, etc. It's the same with cheese. Like a, a great wash rind, like Epoise um, from Burgundy, Long, um, which is from Champagne, or Pont l'Evêque or Libero from Normandy. You go for those in the colder months because you're also drinking the wines in those colder months that match, whether it's a Languedoc Syrah. Uh, a very gentle cold climate Pinot from Victoria. You need those sort of meaty umami flavours to match those wines. Um, people don't really eat goat's cheese in winter unless they're doing a salad. They ask for goat's curd so they can do their roasted beetroots um, or citrus and fennel salads. And then you do a little quenelle of whether it's labner or curd. Um, and then things like um, triple cream breeze, they're very popular in summer because people have parties and gatherings. Um, so we try and teach people when to eat certain cheeses. And also in winter, we're a bit more relaxed with our bodies, so we tend to drink more. And that means maybe more dessert wine as well. So that's when blue cheeses are super popular too because people love blue cheese, the spice of blue, and the sweetness of the dessert wine. It just works magically like a Roquefort with Sauternes is still the best pairing ever so, and that's what we do we look at we i mean we're lucky here to be right in the middle of the fruit and veg hall of the market so we see what's in season and yeah. it's tough at the moment because with the climate changing we're seeing tomatoes ripening now towards the end of january rather than november so we're seeing people making more tomato salads around there so mozzarella sales are up around that time ricotta sales are up um figs go all the way through to autumn now which is crazy so people are loving blue cheese and figs and honeycomb Mm. once they have those heavier dishes so um i teach my staff to be aware of what's around us whether citrus are kicking in um to do those citrus salads with shaved pecorino or um you know great honeycomb harvested from our friends at um backyard honey as soon as that fresh honeycomb comes in we pair that with the Parmigiano Reggiano that we do. Um, we crack open wedges of that Crevero Parmesan, and having that, which is such a sweet cheese compared to the other Parmesans, which are quite bitey, with that richness and sweetness of a honeycomb, it's it's such a incredible like pairing. Like it's so simple yet so fascinating because every taste bud in your tongue starts dancing and. And it's just, it shows people just how great two raw products can be when put, put together. Mm. So it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun opening people's eyes here at the counter to remarkable things like Tom cheeses, like the, the Pyrenees cheeses, the, the goats and sheep. 
they work incredibly well with those gentle reds. So autumn, when people are doing duck and pinot nights, it's still a thing. Yeah. Um, they're coming for those type of cheeses. And yeah. It's pretty cool. And um, do you... Is there a perfect cheese board or do you, would you advocate more for doing a single really good cheese with a honeycomb, that kind of style? Yeah, see, uh, there is a perfect cheese board, um, but it all comes down to, to what wine you, you want to pick and whether you want it to be a pairing. Uh, for me, I always pick one wine and two incredibly well-paired cheeses that go with that and okay. two different textures. Mm. Uh, so lately... It's been about tasting Chablis that we've had at the shop for two years and we've held, so 2018, 2019 Chablis. So that minerality is there, the hint of the sort of secondary flavours and tertiary flavours that develop in the bottle, so little vanilla notes, so Comte and beautiful Camembert go incredibly well. And we just do those two for dinner, uh, for dinner parties. Um, I've been lucky enough to open up a couple of really cool bottles with the staff of some Languedoc Syrah, um, which is quite fleshy fleshy and, and like deep purple plum flavours. So we pick two great cheeses with that and we try and tell customers this is what you want. So in terms of like the ultimate cheese, I guess the... Probably to give people a more direct answer, if you're doing a pre-dinner cheese platter, the perfect cheese plate is... Something soft from the Loire Valley, whether it's a Chabachou, Monthe, Safoy, or Valence, a semi-hard from the Pyrenees, whether it's the Chabran or Chabrie, so it's a goat's milk semi-hard tom, and then the Comte. And those three with a Sancerre, um, any of those Loire Valley whites, or just a crisp Chonin Blanc, it's perfect because you've got the salinity or the notes of salinity in the wine, you've got hints of salt in the cheese, but they're all front of palate cheeses and they get your palate going. They get the saliva going. So whatever you have afterwards, you know you're going to eat because your appetite's going. You've got all that sort of sweetness, the hint of salt, a little bit of umami from the Comte, but everything else is acid and sweet and savoury and, and it just gets you hungry. So that's mm. like the perfect pre-dinner or pre-lunch um, cheese plate. Mm. Triple cream breeze have their place, but that's more celebration. I wouldn't serve that before a dinner because it's a bloody addictive cheese and you're going to eat a handful of crackers or bread with it and you yeah. fill yourself up with the the carbs so by the time the dinner comes out you're too full <laughs> with these cheeses like these goats and the Pyrenees and the Comte you don't need anything other than fresh fruit yeah, they don't right. need a, a morsel of fruit toast or bread or biscuits it's just a slice of pear in winter or you know barbecued white peaches in summer it's perfect delicious so would you suggest that people only buy enough that they're going to that's going to go in the night? Yep. Yeah, definitely. Because I was going to ask you about keeping cheeses, but maybe yeah, you keeping be keeping cheeses. If I mean, if you're struggling to get to your like with all of us having really busy lives these days, sometimes a lot of people only shop once a week. Yeah. So if you are going to buy enough cheese to linger through the week, what you want is to purchase from people who sell cheese in cheese paper and cut to order. So if you're buying pre-wrapped, glad-wrapped cheese, it's already suffocated. It's already oxidised as well. And you're spending big money these days on quality quality cheese. So you want to make it 100%. So what we recommend with our customers when we wrap it in the paper, if they're only going to serve, say, for two people tonight, cut a portion and serve that and keep the rest of it in the paper in your vegetable crisper. So oh. keeping 
cheese wrapped in cheese paper, in a paper bag, in the vegetable crisper where all your greens are, there's a lot of moisture and cheese wants moisture. It's a living organism. It, it doesn't want to dry out. Like the, okay. the myth of putting it in the, the drawer where the butter is in the door, that's great for butter because that's dry, cold. But for cheeses, it yeah. needs to be moisture. And, and if you want to really geek out, you can get yourself a little Tupperware container, put a damp chucks cloth on the bottom, one of those little um, wooden sushi mats that you can get from the $2 shop, mm. a little sugar cube, punch a hole in the lid, put that in your fridge, and that keeps around 80-85% relative humidity and around 6-7 degrees if, if your fridge is about 2 degrees. And that's a cool environment to, to maintain cheese for up to 3 to 4 weeks. Wow. And every time you pull your cheese out of the fridge, if it's a hard cheese, you just get a flat blade knife and you just scrape the faces just to get rid of oxidisation. Because no matter how great your conditions are, there will always be a hint of oxidisation. Cheese like that doesn't go off, it just dries. Yeah. So you just quickly do a little shave and then you serve it. Like, And the myth of serving cheese after one hour at room temperature, no. Because all those hard cheeses which are high in butter fat, they sweat. So the ideal temperature is about 8 degrees, which is about 10 minutes out of the fridge. Like I've seen restaurants leave the cheese out for so long and then serve it to customers and when you describe a, a cheese to them all they taste is salt and spice and it's like oh all that sweat on that cheese that's the flavor that i was telling you about so when people are at home just five to ten minutes out of the fridge and then serve like mm. comte is one of those alpine cheeses that will sweat straight away half an hour an hour at room temp of 18 degrees by the time you eat it it's kind of like that sort of mushy texture and it just the flavors dissipated so yeah um yeah and if you do that if you keep care of your cheese like i keep wedges of parmigiano and wedges of comte in my fridge at home for up to two months so i'm a bit lazy at the end of the day i don't want to cut a portion i cut a big block or i just take whatever big block is there and yeah. um wrap it up in cheese paper take it home and then yeah. cut what i need and then i just cheese maintenance is like second nature we we spend an hour and a half every morning trimming our cheeses here at the shop wow. to make sure that they're always in pristine condition for our customers so um, do you think about cheese 24 7 i think about cheese and maker munga i think 24 7 um <laughs> it's, it's, it's cost me a few relationships in the past i oh. guess um oh. but like any anything that you're passionate about there's always ideas like you could be watching a tv show reading a book looking at some artwork or just driving and you see something or you hear something on the radio and you go hang on that's just sparked this idea in my head i want to run with that and i have a little notepad and i always write little notes or i'll ring one of the staff up i hope they don't mind when i bother them and just go hey i reckon we should try this or you know like to tune off at home I try not to watch cooking shows but inevitably I do and I, I love it because it gives me an idea for a dish that we can then recommend to customers to add some dairy element they would never have thought of and I love that and that's why I think yeah 24-7 um, I don't have cheese dreams so I still think that's a bloody myth unless you have a kilo of cheese and you get the the same endorphins as um recreational drugs apparently and that's what they've done in a study in america oh. and they've proven it so uh, that's only happened once a year when i when i have my birthday we we've dubbed it cheese palooza and we have since i think i've been in cheese in 2006 so every birthday i've had i've always just done like a big cheese event whether it's fondue raclette yeah. whoever gets lucky enough to get invited to my house they 
overindulge in cheese and they always tend to tell me they've had interesting dreams but then you look at the bottles of wine <laughs> in, the next morning that have been drunk and it's like okay was it the alcohol or was it a combination of the alcohol and the the, the, the protein so, yeah 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 thank you so much no thank you amazing no, thanks what time Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with the Chef with Anthony Femia at Maker and Manga. You can check out all the goodness, and I have to say there is a lot of it on Instagram at Maker and Manga. That's all one word: M A K E M A K E R A N D M O N G E R. If you like what you heard and want to hear more stories from other chefs, I'm on Instagram at Conversation with the Chef. You can read the chat. Uh, although you don't hear our amazing dulcet tones, but you can become a subscriber at www.conversationwithchef.com. It's good for me. I feel like you're there. I know people are reading it, loving it, hopefully. It's good for you because you get to know when new conversations go up. I'd also really love it if you told a friend about my chats and you can follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening. Have a great day and bon appétit.